Colossians chapter 4, starting from verse 2. We're going to read to the end of the chapter, end of the book. End of the chapter and end of the book. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. All right, now pray for me. This is where we get to the names. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and in Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the church from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And it speaks of people in far off places and men and women that we will never meet in our lifetime, but we give thanks that one day we will worship the land together with these dear brothers and sisters. The church that met in Colossae, the church that met in Laodicea, with the church that meets today in Raymond Terrace, together worshipping the Lamb. So Lord, help us to receive your word with gladness this morning. And hear what you might be saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Six of our team members, six of our teenagers are heading off in about three weeks. Three weeks yesterday, I think it was, um, before they um, start their very first day at boot camp up on the Sunshine Coast. And... um, They're going to embark on six weeks of following Jesus beyond the borders of our town and this state and even our country. 
And they will all have a shared experience, even though they're all heading on different teams. And even though they're going to have a shared experience, because they're going on different teams, they're going to come home with unique stories. They're going to come home with individual experiences that only they will understand and know. Now, when they've concluded their trip, after six weeks, the organisation that they're going with, an organisation called Teen Missions Australia, will give to each of... Do you mind standing up, Beck? You've got yours on today. Um, Beck has a shirt because Beck has been on team before, um, and as has Ebony. And you have a shirt on which is called an FTMers shirt, right? It's a former team member's shirt. Nobody else gets to give in one of these shirts. Nobody else gets to wear one of these shirts until they have completed their experience with team missions. Thanks, Beck. Give her a clap. Good job. It says on it, toughed it, loved it, and survived to tell the truth. So we're praying that that's the case for this next batch of people that go as well. Can I assure you, I've, I've had one of those shirts. It wasn't bright yellow. I can assure you that long after they grow out of those shirts, or in my case, I'm pretty sure it's shrunk in the wash, <laughs> if, you, if, if they ever meet another FTM, another former team member, even if it wasn't on their team, even if it wasn't on the same year that they went, there's something about meeting another person a former team member, and there'll be a knowing smile and a bit of a nod. And then soon after, there'll be a a conversation like, which year did you go on? Where did you go to? Tell me about what happened. And Because there's a shared experience, right? They, They understand what each other have been through, what they've learnt, what they've journeyed. And it's exciting. I hope they all enjoy it. I really do. But I want to tell you this morning that you don't have to go on a teen missions team to experience that. You can have it now. I want to show you from this this closing part of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Remember, this church was sort of a bit of a backwaters church. It was up a valley that no longer, it had no major highway going through it anymore, just sort of a rural road somewhere. And this church was once in a city that was really important in the Roman Empire, but by the stage Paul's writing this letter, it was, you know, it had some trade there, there was some commerce there, there was a bit of farming there, but it was no longer a really significant place in the Roman Empire. Paul had never been there. Paul's writing to a church that he'd never visited. A church where there were a group of Christians there who were just sort of saying, look, you know, does anyone remember us? Are we important? And Paul's been reminding them the whole way through this letter, listen, guys, don't get distracted with all the different things that occur. This is all about Jesus. Keep your eyes, your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your heart fixed on Jesus. And so he finishes this letter. And at first reading, right, when I was reading through this a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, oh, okay. I don't know anything about these guys from verse 7 onwards, all these different names, and we can sort of read between the lines a little bit about them and pick up a few things, but, but what's Paul really saying here? Why did God include this part of this letter to us that we're reading thousands of years later? I've got three things that I, that I think will be 
good for us to just at least observe and reflect on for a little bit. And I, I think it's about joy. I think it's about a joy that we can experience as we join with one another and the way that the gospel takes strangers, the gospel takes people in from different places and different nationalities and different experiences, from different socioeconomic groups, from different financial backgrounds and all sorts of things. And God does something amazing in us and he joins people together and it brings joy. So I want you to, to notice that in just three different ways. Um, go back to verse 2 and we'll see our first part. This is the, the joy that comes with a sense of gospel purpose. All right. Let me refresh your memories, just a couple of verses. Paul says, continually, uh, so continue steadfastly in prayer. So if you're an underlining person, there's some key words in there. Um, he's talking about prayer now for a moment. He says, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in jail, I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So a couple of reflections on what I think we can pick up from prayer in what Paul's talking about. That's, that's what he's addressing. Pray, right? Continue steadfastly in prayer. So here's, here's one thing that I want you to take away about prayer. And, and I've called it, um, I'm a father's son, so I went for an, um, an alliteration. <laughs> plotting prayer. I call it plotting prayer. All right. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving, plotting prayer. Don't worry about making your prayer life spectacular. Don't, don't worry too much about making it sort of, you know, the, the New Year's Eve version of prayer life with millions of dollars spent on spectacular lights and you know lasers and smoke machines and and it's it's a big show don't worry about making your prayer life spectacular just make it consistent just make it consistent better a few stammering words a few words that we stumble over and a few thoughts that are sort of seem a bit incoherent as you're praying silently before God. Better that uttered right throughout the day than a sort of big flowery um, prayer full of theological fire every now and again, just when especially someone's watching. I mean, in fact, if we have to go back to Jesus' ministry, he had pretty harsh words to say to people who prayed like that. There were religious leaders who made a big show of their prayer life. They stood on the street corners and they sort of cleared their throat a little bit when the crowds got you know, heavy and they, out it would come, this theological statements and all sorts of things. And Jesus looked at it all and he just went, it's empty. When you pray, go away into your, into your room. Don't let anyone know. Just, just you speak with your dad, your father. And Paul says it here, look, just continue steadfastly. Don't give up on that. I'm not sure where you're at in your prayer life. I, I think it's probably reflecting now on 30 or so years of walking with Jesus. I would say it's the thing that I, I stumble and trip up in most, in just the spiritual disciplines of following Jesus, my prayer life. It's the thing that I, I sometimes get excited about and I think, oh, I really want to pray more and better, whatever that is. 
And I think I'm doing okay sometimes, and then I all of a sudden find myself in a place where I think, When's, when was the last time that I, I really sat down to talk to my father? Or when was the last time that I, the first thing that came to mind in a situation was, I must talk to my father about this, rather than the last thing. Um, it bugs me. Um, it bugs me when, when I find myself saying this, and certainly when I hear other people saying about it, when they say, well... All we can do now is pray. It's like we've tried everything else. We've done everything that we can. We've tried to work it all. Well, nothing left now but pray. Now, I know what, I know what that means, and I get that. That's okay, but, but shouldn't it be the first thing? Shouldn't it be the, the position of our heart to sort of say, well, listen, um, this is the circumstance, this is the situation. Before we go any further, let's bring it to God. All right? Um, it's one of the things I enjoyed about leading and going on teen mission teams years ago was um, they have this thing called the prayer closet. Remember that, Beck? You're not allowed to sleep in prayer closet, okay? Um, but right throughout the day, as, as soon as people are up and, and the day's happening, um, there's someone rostered on in half-hour blocks to pray. One-hour blocks. Um, One-hour blocks. And someone comes, you'd be digging a hole somewhere on your project and someone tap you on the shoulder and say, your turn, you're, you're next. Oh, okay. And you go up and you, you pray. It's just prayer all the time. You jump in a bus to go down to the marketplace to get something and people say, before we go anywhere, who's praying? And it was a great reminder and something that I've tried to incorporate into my own life. But, but plotting prayer. Paul just says, just just think, I, I don't really know if my prayer life is strong or great or anything, but, but I'm just going to commit to just plotting prayer. Just keep saying. And I, re- I really think that there's a, a sense where God desires most, most he desires a heart that would just say, I, I don't, God, I, you know my heart, God. If that's all we can say, and we can't even find the words, then say that because God does. So Paul's saying, just continue steadfastly in prayer. So plotting prayer, watchful prayer. Another reflection on prayer that I was having and thinking through, watchful prayer. He says, being watchful in your prayer. I thought, what does that mean? What does it mean to be watchful in prayer in particular? Well, doesn't watchful mean to be aware of your surroundings? I, I grew up watching um, documentaries. I still love watching documentaries. Um, and I particularly love watching documentaries about World War II. For some reason, I enjoy them. Um, enjoy learning about it. It's good for us to remind ourselves about where our world was at and the, the cost, uh, the price that was paid. And I remember watching some stuff about, you know, sentries and you think of a sentry on guard and they're watchful, right? That's their job. Their job is to be really aware of their surroundings, to be um, picking up sound and, and vision and smell and something that's different about their situation. Their job is to watch. They're on guard. A watchful person won't walk through life unaware a watchful person 
is looking always around and saying, God, what is happening around me? A watchful prayer life is a life lived with a deliberate attitude of our need for God to involve himself in our situation. I think, I know I have walked through life so often, either completely um, assured of my own capability. I wonder if that's probably at the heart of why I've struggled with prayer so much. Ultimately, prayer is actually a declaration of dependence. Every time I pray, I'm saying, I don't have this God. I need you. All right? That's what prayer is. Now, if, if somewhere deep inside, I actually don't think that's true. If somewhere deep inside, I think, well, I've got this. I just need to work a bit harder. Or I just need to be a bit more disciplined. But I've got this. If, I, if I'm approaching life like that, I will rarely say, God, I need you. I think that's been the case for me in my life on numerous occasions. A watchful prayer life is looking around you at your circumstances as you're going through your day, your workplace, your driving, whatever it might be. I used to laugh at my mum every time we'd go into a shopping centre, drive in. My my mum's, I don't know if she'll listen to this. I've told her to her face, that's fine. She's a horrendous driver. Um... She, she is. It's not one of her gifts. She's got so many talents, but driving's not one of them. And we, we would go into a car park before I had my license, and we'd drive in, and, and the first thing was, oh, Lord, just give me a car park. They go, what are you praying about that stuff? What does God care about car parks, you know? I can't deny the fact, though, that she would pray that to me off, so often, and she'd There'd be cars everywhere, people going everywhere, and she drives around, oh, thank you, Lord, you know, and straight into a car park somewhere. And Now, I don't know whether God is particularly caring about car parks or not, but what I do as I've grown older, respect and love about my mum, is that my mum was continually watchful of her circumstances and saying, how does God fit into these circumstances in my life? And look... Yeah, maybe it was coincidental that all those car parks opened up, but maybe not. But, but to me, she was an example of a watchful prayer. Someone who was just aware of their surroundings and how God might be working and fitting in amongst them and continually saying, oh God, can you just help with this? Or God, can I? And help me to be whatever. That's a watchful prayer. And then he says, but do it with thanksgiving. Do it with thanksgiving. If my prayer is nothing more than my wish list or a uh, spiritual shopping cart up in the top right-hand corner of the screen of my life that I just keep dropping things into all the time, if that's what my prayer list is like, then I need to realign my concept of prayer with the Bible. Because that's not how the Bible talks about prayer. I think the the gospel shapes our prayer life in the way that it breeds gratitude. The gospel breeds gratitude. It should in us. Because the gospel tells us that we can't save ourselves. 
And that we're lost unless we have a rescuer. That should breed gratitude. The gospel tells us that everything that was required for your salvation was supplied by God and not yourself. That should breed gratitude. If we grasp the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, we will be grateful people. We will be. Which means then how we even address and speak to God will be infused with gratefulness. It will be absolutely saturated with thankfulness. Every time we open our mouth to God, it will be a sense of like, oh my goodness, Lord, you've been so good to me. Right? So Paul's saying, listen, just plod on with your prayer life. Just continue steadfastly. Be watchful in it. Be aware of your life. Be aware of what's going on. And let that gratefulness just flow out in your prayer. And then he says, and while you're at it, can you please keep praying for me? <laughs> can, you, can you add me to your list? I love it. I really think it's an honor. And maybe it's an honor that we sometimes overlook in its significance. When someone in a conversation with you, whether it's here over a cup of tea or you bump into someone and someone says to you, hey, can you, can you pray for me? Do you, do you realize what that person has asked you to do and what you're about to engage with? You can take that person, whether they're with you or not, and it's like grabbing them by the hand and walking into the throne room of heaven. When you, when you say, I'm going to pray for you, and you actually do, you're grabbing that person by the hand and you're walking them into the presence of your father in the throne room of heaven and you're saying... God, I know you're busy at the moment, but the Bible tells me that you've always got ears to hear your children. So I just want to share with you something that's going on in my friend's life. That's what happens when you pray for someone. And Paul says, will you pray for me? Look what he asked them to pray for. Um, it's there in verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us. Here's the first thing, that God would open up a door. That God would open up a door. Let me just remind you that God is in the business of rescuing the lost. That's what God does. God is in the business of saving sinners. God is in the business of welcoming home those who have wandered away. And I think it's an incredibly liberating thing to know that it's God who opens doors. We don't have to bash doors down. You don't have to walk in, big Bible in hand, kicking doors, claiming names, another notch. You don't have to. God is at work in people's lives all around us, all the time. And Paul is saying to these friends in Colossae that he hasn't met yet, not in person, and he says, listen, while you're praying, can you pray for me? And this is what I want you to pray for. Pray that God would open up doors. God's doing it. And we should be pleading, Lord, do it again, right? Do it again. Lord, open up a door. Help us to see the opportunities. Here's another change in my language about prayer that I've been trying to incorporate into my vocabulary, the way that I speak. I used to pray 
Lord, give us opportunities today. And someone challenged me on it. And it was with this passage. They said, don't pray like that. So, don't, don't tell me how to pray. It's like, well, Paul did. Paul told us how to pray. So let's just look at what Paul says. Don't pray, Lord, give me opportunities today. God is already giving you opportunities. Pray, Lord, open my eyes to see the opportunities. Help me to be watchful so that I can be aware of the opportunities. There are doors open all around you. And we just need to have eyes to see them. So that's the first thing. He says, pray that the Lord would open up doors. The second thing he says, though, is that um, pray that they open up doors for the word. Pray that God would open up doors for the word. Christians, if, you, if you've hung around Christians for a while, or if you've been a Christian for a while, we have all sorts of weird ways of talking to one another. Um, we've got our own vocabulary that we've sort of made up along the way. And um, one of them is open doors. It's based from passages like this. And we talk about open doors or opportunities and things like that. Um, open doors are word portals. They're, they're places where the word of God can be shared and spoken. That's what a door is opened for. That's what Paul sees them as. In other words, God opens doors so that we can open our mouths. That's why he opens them. There was a saying that became quite popular during the 90s, talking about Christianese sort of language that we, we talk about with each other. During the, the late 90s and the early 2000s, I don't know if you remember hearing this being said. I've, I've said it myself. Um, in the old days, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. All right? That was a saying that became really popular during the 90s and the early 2000s. And it, it developed for good reason. It became popular as a response to, I think, there was sort of a disconnect between people who spoke about Jesus but didn't live like Jesus. And so... In a way of sort of trying to counteract that sense of hypocrisy where people would walk around saying, you know, I love Jesus and you should love Jesus, but their, their lifestyle and their actions completely denied that. Amongst the church, there was sort of a bit of a, a reaction to that. And they started saying, hey, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. They were saying, let your life preach the gospel. Let your life dis demonstrate. Let it show off the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you... If you need to, then use words and say something. So I think it was well-intentioned, but it's wrong. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. The gospel must be spoken. It must be declared. So around the same time, during the 90s and 2000s, this thing um, became very popular amongst churches where they talked about friendship evangelism. So, you know, make a friend for Jesus type of thing. It was sort of a bit corny. Um, again, well-intentioned, and I think it was, you know, I think there's lots of good stuff to take out of that. One of the sayings that was in that was that we need to build bridges with our friends. All right? Build bridges. Um, and that's, I, I agree with that. I think it's... It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. That's what friendship is about. Friendship is actually engaging in somebody's life. I mean, if you, if you just go through life and everything's about you, that's not being a friend. That's just being selfish. Yeah. 
Um, we need to be interested in one another's lives. And not because we're hoping they'll become a Christian. Oh, are you interested in becoming a Christian? No, not really. Well, you're not my friend. You know, let's move on and make another friend for Jesus sort of thing. That's not friendship either. The problem with the saying of, you know, sort of building bridges and people would go out with their friends or I can remember doing this um, when I was old enough. I went down to the pub, I think I was about 19 or something, and an older guy that didn't agree with, you know, me going to the pub when I was 19 said to me, oh, you shouldn't be going to the pub. And I said, I'm building bridges. (laughs) All right? I'm building bridges. Um, The problem is I think so many of us built so many bridges, but we just forgot to cross them. All right? We... We spent all our time building bridges, but we never walked over them and said, listen, can I tell you about the good news of Jesus in my life? And so Paul says, pray for open doors that the word may go through them. Pray for me that when God opens up a door for the word, that I will declare it clearly, which is how I ought to speak, is what Paul says. One more thing that I want you to notice from this little section at the beginning is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is costly. But that's no reason to stop. Did you notice it? Paul says there he wants them to pray so that he can speak boldly and clearly into the opportunities that God gives. But notice that Paul is already doing it Which is the very reason why he's in jail. He says, um, Pray for me, that pray for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Paul had already committed his life to being a person who was watchful, a person who was a proclaimer of the word. A person who was all about saying, listen, yes, I understand that Jesus is a mystery, but I'm here to try and help resolve that. I'm here to try and help speak about that and show you what that looks like. And when Paul did that, he ended up in prison. The gospel is costly. Now, I I hope that in our lifetime in Australia that none of us will end up doing prison time simply because we are followers of Jesus. But the reality is that there are plenty of people all over the world who do. And maybe it will be one day in Australia. But that's no reason to stop. Paul doesn't say, listen, pray for me that I'll be released from prison. He doesn't say, pray for me that my persecutors, that God may have vengeance on them. He doesn't pray for that either. He doesn't say, pray that I can get out of jail. He doesn't say, pray for my protection. He doesn't say, pray that my enemies will be defeated. He doesn't even say, pray for victory in this circumstance. He just simply says, pray that a door would be opened for the word. And that I might speak clearly. The gospel is costly, but that is no reason to stop. All right. Let's move on to the next little section. We're going to go a bit quicker. There's also a joy in gospel living. All right, There's there's a joy that comes as we join with others in living out the good news of Jesus and speaking about it. So verse 5, 
and verse 6. We're just going to focus on that for a little bit. We think, we think that a lifetime is, well, it's a lifetime, right? It's, it's a long period of time. We think, oh, that's a lifetime. I mean, really, it's the longest period of time that any of us will ever experience on earth. A lifetime. And so in our minds, we think it is a massively long, sort of almost, when you're younger, you barely ever think about it. And when you're older, you probably think how fast that has flown past. But God doesn't measure lifetimes like we might measure that. God measures lifetimes with words like breath. Did you read through the Bible? God measures lifetimes with ideas like a morning mist that burns off as the sun rises or a flower that rises and then fades away in the heat of the day. That's how God talks about lifetimes. We need to make the most of the time we have because it isn't long, nor is it guaranteed. So Paul says in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outside, making the best use of the time. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. That's not a really politically correct term in Australia in 2019, outsiders. We're very inclusive in Australia. What Paul is trying to talk about is that those of you who know Jesus, a bit like an FTMer, right? If you've never been on a team, and most of you haven't, you can look at pictures when they come home, you can hear about stories about their experience, but the reality is, unless you've been there and lived it and experienced it, you will never quite enter into it the same way that Beck has, or Ebony has, or the rest of this team that are about to experience that. And, and that's sort of what Paul's drawing on. As a follower of Jesus, someone who knows him and knows you're loved and experienced the grace of God, there's something about meeting another Christian where you can sort of look and you might be on a train somewhere or a plane somewhere or on a bus somewhere and you meet them and you all of a sudden discover they're a Christian. There's sort of this, how are you doing? You know? <laughs> I mean, there's this sort of thing. Like, you don't know them. They're a stranger. But that's sort of like, but you... I do know you. You're a brother. You're a sister. There's something about you that, that you and I have a shared experience that, that those who don't know Jesus this way, who, those who, who haven't experienced and embraced the grace of God in that way, they haven't entered into and understand that in the same way. So in that sense, they're an outsider. And Paul says, listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, think carefully, walk wisely with outsiders, people who don't understand the grace of God like you do. Make the best use of the time that you've got. Now, how do we do that? How do we make every moment of every day and realize it's a gift to demonstrate something to people who don't know Jesus in the same way that I do? How do we do that? Verse 6, right? Pretty clear. Let your speech always be gracious. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt. There's another sort of Christian little phrase. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, ought, how you ought to answer each person. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Now, salt, we know, is used you know, all sorts of things. We, we bring into this, we say salt is a preserving agent. 
So in our culture, the way that we speak, it should preserve something good. That's true. Um, Salt is also flavoursome. Who likes plain salt or chicken salt on their hot chips? Who likes no salt? We'll have a prayer time for you, Rob. No good for your blood pressure. It's just a lifetime, mate. Don't worry about it. I mean, we add this salts and whatever. If we're not worried about blood pressure, Rob, then we add salt and chicken salt or gravy or something. We add this stuff to our food because we know it's it's supposed to be an enhancer of flavors. It's supposed to enhance the experience of eating potato dipped in fat. Um, Paul says let your speech be like that and in the context of what he's talking about I don't think he means necessarily now salt if you, if you just grab a big teaspoon of salt all right, like I used to do with a tin of Milo or used to you know, get the sugar out the little sugar packets at the cafe when I was a kid it's like y'all have five packets with you know, sugars it's like just straight onto the tongue. Um, try and do that with salt. You know, it's actually a funny thing to do to your kids and just sort of film it. It's pretty funny. <laughs> that and lemon juice and stuff like that. They're, because it's nice if you just sprinkle a bit onto the chips. You go, oh, oh, yum, salt. So doesn't it make sense that you should just be able to, well, let's just grab a whole heap of that. That's beautiful. And you, you know it's not. It just about turns your face inside out. It's disgusting. And the reality is that there are Christians who are walking through this world so salty that they're turning faces inside out. Their own included. All right? And there are people around them. And, and the, the Christian in this world is actually meant to have a sense where people are just going, I don't know what that is, but I want more of that. I can't explain that, and it seems weird to me, but I like it when they're around. So our speech and our activity, Paul says, it needs to be gracious and seasoned with salt. I think if the way that we speak and the way that we react to the world around, if it is always so caustic and bitter, then we need to try a bit more grace. It works better than criticism. Our goal with every conversation had with an outsider should be to have them leaving wanting more. That their experience with us was an advertisement for the joy that can be found in Jesus. All right. We're not going to go through really slow all this last part. But I want you to notice, amongst all the names from verse 7 all the way down to the end of the chapter, that there is an incredible joy that happens with gospel community. Look at all the names for a moment. I'm going to list them. I wrote them all down just to take them out of the text. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Jesus, who's called Justice, so not Jesus Messiah, Jesus, who's called Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, these are all guys that Paul's with and sharing life with. And he's saying, hey, hey, they're sending their greetings to you guys. And some of them are going to come visit you soon. So make sure when they do, look after them. You know, they're, they're brothers. And, and the things that he says about them, if we had the time to go through it all, 
man, it's amazing. He's like, hey, this guy here, he has been working hard for you people. And he's come here and he's encouraging me because of what's happening there. And he's going to come back to you and he's got your best interest in heart. And he wants to encourage you. This is the sort of thing that happens and the way that the gospel can sort of bring together people from all over the place. And it says there is a joy about gospel Christian community that should exist. It's what Jesus does when he invades people's lives. It doesn't finish there because then he starts saying, hey, um, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. That's a neighboring city. And he says, and to, he names this lady Nympha. And, and we know that the church met in her house. And he says, I want you to greet her. She's precious to me. He says, when you're finished reading the letter that I'm sending you, make sure you send someone over to Laodicea and get them to read it as well. And while they're there, grab the letter that I wrote to them and bring it back. And you read that one as well. And there's this, can you see this network of connections and relationships? And all of it is brought together by Jesus. The gospel of grace is found in Christ alone. And it not only leads the individual into a relationship with God, but it also creates a community of redeemed sinners who have found redemption and who have found relationship not only with Christ but with each other. There is a joy in gospel community. All right, we need to finish. I said in the very first week that we started this series that this book was all about grace. Jesus is at the center of this. And it's bookmarked by it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the opening sentence of this letter, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Do you notice how he finishes what the last sentence of this book is? Colossians 4.18. I, Paul, write this letter with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace to you. Paul's heart has been all the time, this is all about Jesus, guys. And this is about the grace that can be found in him. And grace is amazing, right? Grace is amazing. The pathway of discipleship is difficult. And it's littered with all sorts of distractions, all sorts of detours. But we can be assured absolutely of this. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far. Grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The very last verse of John Newton's hymn that he wrote, The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, and the sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. Let's pray. Lord, you, you have shown us amazing grace. Grace because it is 
your riches poured out to us in Christ, even though we are sinners, even though we are broken and rebellious people, you continue to show up in love and grace and mercy and draw us to yourself. And so we love to sing these songs. We love to sing old hymns that tell of your grace. We love to sing new songs that declare your grace because we know that we don't deserve it. So help us to be people who find joy in what it means to be living out the gospel with each other, in our prayer life, with wisdom, with those that we're interacting with in the world, whatever it might be. Lord, help us to find joy in what you have done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.